Thanks for listening to Bezier. Bezier is sponsored by Superhigh, online courses for code, design, and product management. Superhigh's courses can be done in your own home at your own pace. I've been a Superhigh student since 2017 and have gone from being a designer feeling alienated by the should designers code discourse to building my own sites and now even selling web design services. My favorite part of Superhigh is the community of learners. As a Superhigh student, you're added to this huge community of all the other Superhigh students. It's filled with inspiring people from all over the world in all different places in their careers. I've gotten work there, I found podcast guests there, and even made in-person friends, all because of Superhigh. It's easy to get started. There's an online code editor. You can do it on your own schedule. There's built-in community of learners. It's got everything you need. Start learning to code, design, or product manage today at superhigh.com. I'd like to have guests introduce themselves. Could you share a bit about yourself? I'm Caitlin. My pronouns are she, her. And I'm a UX UI teacher at Memorizely. We run live online UX UI and coding boot camps. A few things about me. So I grew up in Hackney in East London, but I'm in the middle of officially moving to Amsterdam because of a bit of a pandemic love story. I met my partner Carl during an online communication course in November 2020. Not super convenient timing, but I got on a train to Amsterdam a week after we first met and I haven't looked back since. My whole career, I've worked in the creative and the cultural industry. And although I've had a lot of different roles, the common thread is they've always been human-centered and about creating experiences for others. So I started out in production design and then I moved into working with cultural institutions, helping them create programs and exhibitions that reflected and welcomed the communities around their spaces. And I'm still pretty new to the UX UI space. And I'm trying to figure out exactly how I want to show up here. But what I do know is where a lot of my passion lies is in the designers themselves, which is why I'm so excited to be a teacher. And before we get more into that, can you tell us a little bit about what you do outside of work? Right now, a lot of it is just about learning the city that I've just moved to. So I'm spending a lot of time walking around Amsterdam and discovering things to do here. I'm actually about to get a museum pass so that I can go and visit all of our amazing museums. And I think the other thing that I'm spending a lot of time doing right now is just a lot of personal development work, a lot of self-reflection. So I've been doing things like meditating and trying out like different forms of yoga and stuff like that. So that's really where my headspace is right now. And how are you finding Amsterdam so far? I love this city so much. I feel such a kinship to it even though I've only been here really since January you know I've lived in London my whole life and London is a great city and it's also very fast-paced very big very noisy and I think during the pandemic I really started looking at it and going I'm not sure this place is working for me anymore and I'm not sure that actually it works for a lot of people who are still living there what I love about Amsterdam is really the people here and the kind of calmness that's on the streets. I'm used to, I'm used to living in a very busy area in Hackney and the way of living there is very fast paced. And I love that here, there is just such a culture of kind of looking after yourself and just being with others. And I really love that. I find it funny how positive you say it just because the weather right now is quite the opposite from 
just, I, I don't know, six weeks ago when we met, we met at a super high meetup and it was like beautifully sunny and we were outside for like six hours and now it's like <laughs> really cold and raining today in Amsterdam. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I completely, yeah, the weather here is a, uh, is a different story. However, again, in London, the weather's not that great either. So fair, fair. <laughs> And in a lot of ways, I mean, you know, we're, we're both, we've got our Californian connection. It's no California, but I do, I there's something crazy about the rain, even in June. <laughs> well, you mentioned your California connection. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your sort of career progression to today. Of course. So as I mentioned, my whole career, I've worked in the creative and cultural industry. And that started when I was 17. I decided not to go to university. I wanted to kind of just jump in and start work straight away. And I was working at a cafe in Hackney and I had one of my regulars come in to me and he said, you know, you don't look very happy today. I assume you don't just want to be working in a cafe. What do you want to do? And I was like, I want to be a set designer because I really, I did fine art at A-level and I really loved installation art. What I love about installation art is that the way that it can make you feel something when your entire environment is different. But I also was a little realistic and was like, am I going to be the next Cornelia Parker? Probably not. So set design seemed like a good option. So I started off, as I said, in production design, and I did that for a good few years. I worked for magazines, I worked for the BBC, and it was great. What changed my career was this feeling of going, I'm loving this, but I feel like I'm not doing anything for anyone. I feel like I'm not giving anything back. I'm just big companies and making them more money. So I switched into working with museums because I thought I can still create experiences for people, but it's going to have some public benefit. Museums are there for good and they're there for everyone. But what I quickly discovered in entering the creative industry was that that really wasn't the case. A lot of the times we feel like our public institutions just naturally are there and they benefit everybody and they actually really don't. They alienate a lot of people. So that's then became what my career was about. It was all about looking around the room and going, who is not here and how do we get them in the room? And that led me to working for Camden Council because I thought, great, a bigger platform, more institutions I can work with, a greater reach and impact that I can have. When I was at Camden, I got given a task to redo this website that we had called Love Camden, which was essentially just event listings and things in the borough. And I was like, wait a minute, I don't know how to do a website. I don't know anything about that. So I jumped in and was like, right, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to figure out what it takes to rebuild a website that really actually benefits people. And that led me down the UX rabbit hole and I found Super High and then I found the UX Design Institute and then I found Memorizely and I went and did all of this training and then switched into doing product design at Camden. And that kind of pretty much brings me to now, but I've moved on from Camden and was so honored to be asked by Zander, who is the founder of Memorizely, to come on and teach UX UI with them. And what's teaching UX UI at Memorizely like? Well, I haven't done my first class yet. I'm very excited to start that in August. But what it's been like so far is just an integration into this worldwide team who have this very strong, clear goal of being able to support designers around the world to take that career step in a way that's affordable and also works for people with kind of different learning styles and 
They made it affordable. So many boot camps are so expensive. And it's also something I love about Super High as well. They make their programs and their events, they make them accessible. They make it that anyone actually has the opportunity to change their career. For people that are not familiar with Memorizely, like I, th I think you've shared that you're teaching UX there, maybe bootcamp style. Can you talk a little bit about what the, the structure looks like? The boot camp that I'm running starts in August, but we have them across different subjects and they run at different times and dates throughout the year. It's 12 weeks for the UX UI boot camp with kind of a two week break in between. And what's really special about Memorizely is that they're live classes. So you're in Figma in a small group of say 20 designers and you're doing things live. So you can ask those questions that you have. And it's nice that, you know, video recordings and on-demand classes are also fantastic and have their place. And that again, that's what Super High has and I've learned a lot from them. But what is special is being able to have that face-to-face -face time with your students live. What's your day-to-day -day look like when you're not in those 10 weeks of live classes? So right now, as I said, I just left Camden and I'm kind of transitioning into this role. So my days are super varied. I have like my little morning routine. As I said, I'm like into my yoga right now and my meditation. And then I do Dutch lessons because I'm very adamant that if I'm going to live here, I'm going to learn Dutch. Please don't ask me to speak any Dutch though. My pronunciation is... <laughs> the pronunciation, not great right now. Writing a little bit better. And then I jump into our Slack and I'm kind of doing this thing where I do office hours. So I go into our community channels and see where our designers have reached out and asked for support, say like on a project or they just have a question and I get chatting to them and see how I can help. Like a really good day for me right now is also one where I can kind of grab a coffee with one of my new teammates and like get to know the team a little better. And ones where we also have team meetings and we're all jumping in and trying to go, okay, what's the next thing that we can do to support our students? And that's what's really great about Memorize ESL. It's very iterative and it's always responding to what people are asking that they want to see from us. Now, the introduction to UX, what are the people that are joining those courses usually? What's their level? What's their background? Are they coming in being like, I've never used a design tool before or I've been self-taught and now I want to get a job like you know where's the the level there it's a great question we actually have both types we have people who are really very the beginning the ones who like us all let's be honest are on google going what is the difference between ux and ui when we first start out so we have people who may have only just heard of figma rather than even ever jumping into it before but we also have people that, like you said, are self-taught or maybe they've done other boot camps where it's been videos and they want to try a live experience because they have questions or they just want more of a hands-on experience. And I think for that group of people, because I sat more in that side when I did a boot camp uh, with Memorize myself, I did their UI boot camp. It was about, you know, you start Googling and you find really conflicting information very quickly. I just wanted one voice to be able to go, no, here's a way to do it. And sure, there's maybe 10 other ways, but let me sit down and show you how to do this. You have a foundation that you can build on. Maybe a little bit of a different take on my normal questions here, but what's advice that you make sure every one of your students is going to hear? There are so many things I want to say, but the one that really sits with me is that Transitioning into a new career 
or taking on learning whilst you're working or dealing with whatever life throws up with you, it can feel overwhelming very quickly. First of all, I just want you to know that you're not alone and that experience is universal. So really my advice is to go and find yourself a community where others are going through or have gone through the same thing. There is so much power in feeling connected to other people going through your experience. And if you aren't ready to take that step, which is fair enough, my advice would be at least to find someone that you can follow or listen to that understands where you are. Because that's really what it is about. You can't be a good designer if you don't even have the foundation of feeling good within yourself. Might have answered my next question. What's something that you teach that you feel like a lot of UX practitioners out in the field are, are doing wrong? Something that you teach and wish they were learning as well. Okay, this, I love this question. And I'll say it very simply. If you are not doing research, you are not doing UX. Okay? So that's number one. The second thing that I like to tell you is that's great that you're in love with your product and that you're proud of it. Fantastic. It's not about how beautiful your product is. It's about whether or not it's helping your users achieve a goal. And I think we get so blindsided and one-minded on it's got to look this way. And it's, you know, we get very internal about those conversations and we forget, again, if we're not doing the research and we're not talking to users and we're not solving an actual, pro an actual problem, we're not doing our jobs. Now, this is something I've always wondered because I've never, uh, having not worked on a product design team before at a large scale organization, what do you say about UX designers doing research when there's a UX research team within their organization? Do you still think it's like every designer's role to also do research or if they've got like a hired person that their full-time job is research or maybe a whole team for it, is it still a responsibility? I think at the very least, it's your responsibility to be very engaged in what your UX researcher or your UX research team is going out in the field and learning. And actually not just them either, because if you work in a big organization, those insights are going to be coming from other places as well. So your sales team, for example, are going out on calls and they're really listening to your customers. You've got your customer service team. It's actually, if you're not doing the research yourself, and that is okay in some big organizations, that actually isn't necessarily your fundamental role, but it is your job to pull from these different places and listen to them and, and make it actionable because I think it's really easy sometimes to ignore the research because it doesn't always align with what we want it to say. There are a lot of great qualities in our creative communities, but on the flip side, there's a lot of problems. And we see all sorts of bigotries among our peers. How should we be handling it? How are we teaching the next generation of designers to be otherwise? So my first thing to say is you can't change what you aren't aware of. So my first tip is to educate yourself on how others are experiencing your workplace and the wider industry. And please pick ways to hear people's voices where they've chosen to give them and they have been compensated for their time. That might be a book, it might be an article, it might be a talk. But remember, it is not marginalized people's responsibility to educate you. The second is to be an advocate for finding various ways to communicate and get things done. I think we get really set 
in workplaces and, you know, in our routines as well, that we do things in a certain way. And it can be very challenging to, you know, steer the ship, as it were. There's a really common example. You know, we do presentations all the time. That can be hellish for people with, say, ADHD and others who identify with different neurodiverse traits. You know, there's so many ways you can combat this. Just even just a little bit of thought, like recording a meeting and sending it out afterwards with software that allows it to be sped up or emailing key points in plain English. And what I love about this and this conversation is these actions help everyone. It's not just the people who it might, you're looking around and going, how can we include them? It might help someone on your team who's a parent and has had their kids screaming in the next room as they're trying to listen to you. Actions like these meet people where they are. And that's what I think we need to be focusing on. I liked your comment about, you know, steering the ship. And I, I think change is hard for everybody. And I think being aware of that fact and recognizing it in yourself too can be really important. Yeah, I think nothing teaches you how challenging it is to steer a ship more than working in government. I could definitely say I take that lesson away of spending three years working in local government. I, you know, I, I've heard that before. Can you talk a little bit about that? What do you think causes that? Well, we all know how challenging it can be to get things done in a hierarchical structure anyway. That's why a lot of teams nowadays take a much more modern approach of like a kind of flat hierarchy, which also can have its own challenges. I haven't experienced this yet, but they say a lot about the Dutch that even the intern has to have an opinion and that's why it takes a long time to get things done. But in councils and in government, you don't just have your hierarchy, which is very traditional in these organizations, but you also answer to a counselor. So if you sit on a certain portfolio, say that's arts and culture, you have a cabinet member who is your counselor that you also answer to. So you usually have about three or four layers above you of people to go through, but then you also have this person who sits on top of all of them who can just honestly change their mind with the flip of a coin. And we like to say that it doesn't work that way, but it honestly does. Our job as officers is to write recommendations to our counselors and have them pass them. And oftentimes what that can look like is writing a lot of papers to get one very simple decision made. And that can be a process that takes a really long time. And then by the time that decision is made, your portfolio member might change or something's happened where they're trying to get reelected and now the small thing that you were doing, it's not that sexy. They want a big sexy thing because they want to be reelected and they need to make a big splash. So that's just to speak of a few of the challenges. I mean, there are, there are others as well. Having said that, what's the Memorizely team structure like? So obviously I mentioned Zonda is the founder and we have our teaching team and then we have our community team. And the community team supports the teaching team, whether that's through supporting them with materials or, you know, just general, like pulling events together in tandem with them. I mean, they really, our community team are the backbone of everything that we do. And then we have our teachers who actually go out and either are present on Slack, as I said, jumping in and helping students with their questions when they're not teaching or also you know, giving feedback, which is a massive part of the, when we're actually doing live boot camps as well. And then also on social media, you'll see a lot of our teachers doing reels and just, again, just finding different entry points for people to engage with 
even if they don't ever take a boot camp with us, just being able to get some positivity of being around Memorizely and, and to learn something. It's a really great community. It's the same thing, Memorizely and Super High, and I know there's some other great design communities as well. Slack can be a really great way, as a, and going back to what I said earlier, of kind of finding your people. Absolutely. That's how we got connected. Exactly. That's, that's how great it is. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Who is one person that our listeners should know about? So I actually have two people but they're collectively known as the white pube. So Zarina and Gabrielle, and they write very unfiltered reviews on art and games and books and food. And if I found them a few years ago before I decided to switch into XUI, and I was feeling really lost working in the arts. I'd go to these meetings and all I could hear in a room was what was not being said. It felt like there was an elephant in every single room I was in when we'd go and talk about why do people not want to come to this institution? Why do they not feel welcome here? And when I found the White Cube and I saw their art thoughts laid out there with posts like why museums are bad vibes and fuck the police, fuck the state, fuck the Tate. It was so validating. It was this moment of, I'm not crazy. There is something going on in this industry that people do not want to talk about. It's not working for the people who are in it, and it's definitely not working for those who are out of it, who at the minimum should feel welcome in their public spaces. You will love them. Their reviews are fantastic. They also run a great Instagram channel with really oh, good. good memes, like top, oh, okay. top memes, honestly. <laughs> we love good art memes. It, exactly. They're on enough. Um, what about reading? What book do you think everyone should read? All right. I have actually a slightly different answer to this question. Sure. So there's a paper that I read at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's the thing that's, it's the thing that stuck with me the most of anything that I've read in a very long time, which is why I wanted to share it. And it's called This Work Isn't For Us. And it's by Gemma Desai. And as I mentioned, I've been working in and out with cultural institutions for most of my career. And a lot of that work has been about creating pathways into these spaces that make people feel welcome. This paper, it dismantled every single notion I had of what the creative and cultural industries achieve around diversity and inclusion. We don't deal in real a lot in our industry or in any professional setting. And the size paper rightly throws that out. It's vulnerable. And it's raw. And if you read it from your position of white privilege, it is a wake-up call on the reality we create and perpetuate that harms and hinders cultural workers embodied indifference. That's her term that she uses. It speaks about how the industry hides behind this mask of happy talk about diversity. We thrust those who have made it into the spotlight either through these professional development schemes or through diverse programming. And it's a marketing exercise because we don't allow open criticism from those who participate in these programs. When if we allowed an honest dialogue, we'd hear all along that these actions are at best empty and at worst causing serious harm. It's eye-opening and it's honestly a must-read for anyone truly committed to understanding how to achieve equality in these industries. What a great recommendation. It honestly, to my core, changed everything that I thought. I really looked at myself a long time after I read that paper. I'm very much culpable in 
having been through and programmed things that I thought were helping when actually what I was missing was actually what it was like for the people going through it. And I think there's a lesson in there as well for UX designers and, and UI designers. Again, it's about getting caught up in what you think is working rather than going back to the source. Where can people find you and what are the best ways to support you? Well, I am actually going to throw myself out there and start a design Instagram page because that is something that I'm doing uh, because it's something we do at Memorizee, but also because, as I said in the beginning, what I'm the passion for me right now, what I'm following is that I'm interested in the people who are the designers themselves. And I will be posting kind of like UX, UI tips, really aimed at beginners and really conscious of the different learning styles, particularly of people who are like neurodiverse. I don't know how other people experience it and I definitely don't want to speak for others. But how I experience when I see tips and stuff on Instagram is I find them very overwhelming. Uh, a lot of times they move too fast for me or... I see a thing of eight great tips about this or that. And I'm like, I'm not going to remember that. I'm on my sofa, not really paying attention. I was just looking to fill the void, actually. <laughs> and then I leave Instagram kind of feeling like, wow, should I have known that? Or how am I going to remember that? And I don't know how I'm going to achieve it yet. But I would like to do it in a way that even if you don't save that post or you think about it again, it might just stay somewhere in the back of your head. Um, and you can find me at Caitlin Louise. I'm sure we can post it in the show notes because it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a fun spelling. My mom went for an A-N rather than an I-N. A little bit making it funky. And I also love to write. So I'm, I started posting on Medium and I'm really committed to doing that more as well. And again, it's at Caitlin Louise, but, and I'd love to see you there as well. Um, and outside of Memorize the, I am kind of working freelance right now. So if you'd love to connect about any projects, especially ones within the creative and cultural space, um, my door is most definitely open. I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. And is that like you'd want people to reach out on your website or do you have um, another way for contact there? I just have an email, which you can link below. We will put the email and everything else in the show notes. Thank you. And what about your Memorizely course that's in August? Are there seats available still? Yeah, so we only just started advertising it. So there are seats left. Um, and I'd absolutely, you know, if there's anyone out there who has any questions about what it might be like to learn with Memorizely or what it might be like to learn in, in my classroom, please reach out. Send me an email, DM me on Instagram, whatever. I'd love to chat. I, I really would. I think taking a boot camp is it's a big financial commitment and you should absolutely get all of your questions answered before you take that step. You really want to understand what you're going to get out of it. So I'm a really big believer in tell me all your questions. I would love to help. What is that financial commitment look like? For the UX UI bootcamp, which as I said, it is 12 weeks, but it has a two week break. So it's 10 weeks of classes. It's 3,450 in US dollars and around two seven in British pounds. Awesome. Caitlin, it's been such a pleasure having you on Bezier. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap up? I'm so thankful for this opportunity. Uh, I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening. Really, thank you. Great. Well, thank you for being on the show. It was really great talking with you. I'm excited to see what you do with your courses at Memorizely. 
And I'm really excited about your Instagram account. Yes, me too. It's really, I'm going to say it's really pushing myself out there, but I'm, I'm a big believer in that when you can, when you, when you've got the headspace to do it, it's good to push yourself. Bezier is a design interview podcast amplifying voices in our creative communities that don't already have large platforms and aren't working at big five tech companies. We focus on finding guests from all over the world and representative of as many of us as possible. If you have a great guest idea for Bezier, please email us at inquiry at zoct.studio. That's I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at Z-A-C-H-T dot studio.